What makes you tick? What makes you tick? That's a, that's a fairly common question. People ask that of people all the time. Well, what, what makes that guy tick? All right, so you've got eight seconds to figure out a brilliant answer. One, two, three, go. What makes you tick? You don't get to just say Jesus. It's got to be, it's got to be something more than that. That's too easy. Wait, wait, wait. You're already discussing among yourselves. You guys are just, you're like social butterflies. It's like a hum in the hive. All right, what makes you tick? Good answers. What do we hear? What makes you tick? I'm sorry? Adventure makes you tick. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. That's actually a pretty good answer from Gray. What makes you tick? Curiosity makes you tick. Oh. What an interesting question. Uh, what else? Arts and crafts that make you, yes, it does. Creativity, yes. Yeah, for faith, that's very true. What else? What makes you tick? Something about politics, God in politics? Well, God bless you. Uh, um, why, why, why is that such a popular question? Uh, over, over time. I, I think it's a vital question. I'm, I'm sort of a, mm, my, my philosophy of life is like essentialism. I like to boil things down as much as possible. And I think in, in boiling things down to bullet points, uh, I think we often uh, have a better chance of getting to the truth of things or the truth of people. And I think that question, well, what makes you tick is, is sort of a boiling it down question. You're looking at someone and you say, well, okay, but what's his bullet point? What's her bullet point? I mean, you know, what's, what's, really, what's really under it all? I, it's, kind of, it's kind of my philosophy of life, but it's sort of my philosophy of discipleship <clears throat> as well. And if you're a Blue Water veteran, uh, you kind of know this. Uh, when Jesus calls a person, Jesus calls that person to purpose, right? That everybody has a purpose, a calling from God. And I think that's what makes you tick in life. I think that kind of defines uh, the way that you follow Jesus. It defines your adventure with Jesus, if you want to use that word. And if you lose track of your calling, if you lose track of your purpose, or if you never find your primary calling and purpose, then you're just kind of spinning your wheels in life. So it's an important question with respect to discipleship. Like, oh, what's my purpose? You know, what makes me tick with God? Uh, what's God's assignment for me in the, in, in the world? It's also my philosophy of counseling. I don't have many philosophies. I basically just have one that I apply everywhere. My philosophy of counseling is that, uh, you know, when somebody's sitting before me uh, asking for help, maybe they have a myriad of problems in their life. Um, I try to determine what the core issue is. And I tell other people in the church, when you're trying to help someone uh, figure, figure out what's going wrong in their lives, like find the person's core issue, like the, the, the thing that's really setting it all off. As best as you can, try to boil it down. And once you find that thing, never ever lose sight of it or let go of it. Because I think what defeats us in life oftentimes are all the sidetracks, right? All, all the bunny trails and all the complications, all the diffusions, what makes you tick. Uh, it's not a bad question. Uh, last week, we started a sermon series on the life of David, King David. Anybody heard of David? Kids, you heard of David? Kids, what do you know about David? What did he do? 
He beat up Goliath. That's right, he defeated Goliath. And today, guess what story we're doing in church? David and Goliath. I mean, it's a classic. Does it get better than David and Goliath? Well, last week when we were introduced to the life of David, he was just a little guy. He's just a young man. And, uh, and the only thing we found out about him, well, we found out one practical thing and then one sort of essential thing. The practical thing was God anointed David to be king over Israel when David was still a, probably a teenager, just a, a young fellow. Why did God do it? Well, the only thing we're told is that David was a man after God's own heart, that there's something about David's heart that God really likes. In other words, the thing that makes David tick kind of excites God. There's something essential. There's some bullet point in David's spirit, and God's like, I really like that. I'll make him king. It's going to be awesome. And, and that's kind of all we know so far. So we get the whole arc of David's life. It is the most complete biography in Scripture. Uh, and what we're doing as we go through David's life is that we are figuring out what that thing is that God likes so much. We're figuring out what the core of David's heart is, what the thing is that makes David tick to a tune that God really likes. I'm totally mixing my metaphors now, but you get the point, right? So we're, we're kind of on the hunt for that. And today uh, we're taking a look at, at, at the, the first story that follows uh, after young David, uh, the teenager, is anointed by the prophet Samuel uh, to be uh, king of Israel. What is the story of David and Goliath about? Who knows? I will take answers from kids. If necessary, I will take answers from adults. If necessary, I will take answers from adults who are childish. What's the story of David and Goliath about? Knowing your identity in God. Bang! That's a sophisticated answer. I like that. I'm sorry? Obedience. Obedience. Uh, David's obedience? Is that what you mean? Da David being obedient uh, to God, uh, presumably. Faith can take down giants. Yeah. I mean, there's a giant involved somewhere in the explanation, right? The little guy beating the big guy. I mean, that's David and Goliath is a pop culture story. I mean, cultures all over the world, whether they believe in God or not, have appropriated the David and Goliath motif. And what's the David and Goliath motif? We hear about it uh, every, every spring in college basketball. There's always a, a David versus Goliath mashup in the NCAA tournament, right? And you always root for David, the little school beating up the big school. Um, yeah, one more question, one more answer over here. Courage. courage, yeah, courage, yeah. Uh, David shows a little bit of moxie in taking down the giant. Uh, all, all very good answers. Uh, but remember, we're trying to figure out, like, what makes David tick and, and, and his heart. So I, I think the most telling thing in the Bible's account of the David and Goliath story is what's not in it. Because we're never exactly told why David did it, why David attacked the, the giant. I mean, we, we can deduce certain things, but there's a lot that's not there. Um, was David told by God to attack the giant? 
actually know? Uh, was he expected to? Well, certainly not. He's just some punk kid, uh, etc. So just bear that in mind as we're going through the story. Now, it's kind of a long story. It pretty much takes up the entirety of 1 Cham Samuel chapter 17. I've excerpted uh, the story, uh, clumps of verses uh, in your program. You can also follow along on, on the big board uh, as we go through it. I'll kind of read it a chunk at the time at a time and, you know, make a few comments. Uh, but everybody kind of knows the general story. A teenager shows up, uh, gets his game on, uh, kills a giant, and becomes a hero. Uh, but these, these are uh, the details. Uh, we'll pick it up in, in verse 4 of chapter uh, 17. And for background, I just want to say there was, a, there was a tradition. We don't know how common it was back in the day. Uh, in this area of the world where nations fought against nations, which really meant clumps of tribes fought against other clumps of tribes. Uh, that's kind of what it was. And there was a season in which they did this, uh, season, season for war. It wasn't in planting or harvesting time because we were busy doing other things, but then sort of that was taken care of, and then everybody uh, said, oh, it's time to go to war. And then they would go out into the fields and they would fight each other. It was a little bit systematized. And within that system, that tradition, there was another tradition of champions. So clumps of tribes would face clumps of tribes. Uh, and rather than just attacking each other and like wiping out hundreds of, of young men, they would instead send out a champion. It's like, well, here's, here's our bad dude. You send out your bad dude. And whichever dude wins, that determines uh, who wins the day. And then the loser has to become subject or sort of enslaved or a tributary to the other. We sort of decided that way. It was, it was a little cleaner uh, that way. So, so that's the tradition. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, so give or take a little over nine feet. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, so several hundred, mm, hundreds of pounds, the whole thing together. Um, on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod huge, like a car axle, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So this dude is decked out. He is as tough as tough can be. He is the physical specimen of all physical specimens. He has all the latest technology, and he has a posse. Uh, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Saul is the current king. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So there's the bully coming out, and he's, he's calling out uh, the army of Israel, sent out a champion, but who in their right mind is going to go fight this guy? And so, you know, they're, they're at a stalemate. And indeed, 
uh, in verse 16, which isn't printed, we read that for 40 days Goliath came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. So for like 40 days, for weeks, this is almost the entire season of war, uh, Goliath is coming out and just insulting Saul's army, and nobody takes him up on his challenge. Um, you know, read into it, neither did the Philistines attack the Israelites because they're playing it safe as well, right? They're sort of like thumbing their nose uh, at each other, but certainly everybody is terrified of Goliath. So in the meantime, uh, David's brothers have gone off to this war. They're in Saul's army. Uh, David is the youngest brother, and his older brothers are physically impressive, we are told from the story last week. But they're gone a long time because this is just sort of a stalemate situation. So Jesse, David's dad, has to send some extra provision, provisions for his boys. Uh, so Jesse uh, gave David uh, some provisions and a bunch of cheese, and he threw in some cheese for his son's commander because, you know, you want your sons to be in good with their lieutenant so the lieutenant doesn't send them against Goliath, you know. Uh, so David takes a whole bunch of cheese uh, to, to the front lines. And uh, when he gets there, he sees the situation. Um, and, uh, and he starts asking questions, picking it up. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Little David takes offense and said, wait, this guy's a bully. Like, why isn't someone going out and taking care of this? Uh, what's going to be done for the guy who finally does it? We read in the story, I didn't print this part, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So if you're like me, you read that and you, and you think, tax exemption. Yes. That's worth it right there. Uh, but but nobody's, nobody's taking him up on it. David is given the answer, but he he keeps asking anyway, even once it is explained to him. Uh, picking it up in uh, verse uh, 26, uh, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistines? When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, hey, shrimp, I threw that in, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You're just here uh, to, to antagonize us and, and to get entertained. A little sensitive, Eliab. Um, and, and you would be if you're the eldest brother. If you're the baddest dude in your family and your little brother shows up and says, essentially, why aren't you taking out the bully? Hey, what's going to be done for the guy who takes out the bully? Somebody should get out there and take out the bully. And Eliab's like, yeah, you're, you're a conceited brat, which is what you would say, right? And also remember last week, the prophet Samuel had prophesied that David would be king and anointed him with oil, and so it's an easy, it's an easy mark for Eliab. Oh, that just made you conceited. You just think you're all that, 
even though you're just a little shrimp. It's typical family dynamics, right? I mean, this is everything that, that we would expect uh, in, uh, among brothers uh, in, in a big family. David says, now what have I done? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. Uh, so David has gotten the right answer. He knows what the answer is. He knows what the rewards are, but he keeps asking the question, why? Why? Because it's not about the question. What is David actually trying to do here? I assume, I can't quite hear you, but I assume you're saying right, he's trying to get someone else to go, right? He's trying, he's, he's, he's subtly or not so subtly trying to get the men to man up. It's like, you know, you got, somebody's got to take out this bully. Somebody's got to try, and he's doing it the way that younger brother's doing it. He's pestering people by asking questions. Um, so, so far, uh, so far, so good. I, I doubt David's angling for the reward himself at this point because he already knows the answer, right? But he keeps at it, so his agenda is different. Are you following? Um, what happens is that Saul hears about this young punk in the rank asking a lot of questions. And so Saul sends for David, uh, which is interesting, an interesting little meet there, uh, given that David has just been anointed by the prophet uh, to be king. And we pick up the story there. Uh, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. I love the way uh, David speaks to Saul. David has maybe a precocious insight because Saul, uh, we have come to learn in the story so far, is a very insecure man. And so David says to him, oh, don't let the king lose heart. Don't lose heart. I mean, don't, don't, don't feel insecure. Be encouraged. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. <laughs> and you just could have, you know, oh, don't worry, king, I got this. Um, and Saul replied, uh, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth, which I don't know what Saul, like, totally said in that moment, but I'm, I'm imagining that it doesn't really translate accurately. I imagine Saul said something like, no way, punk, you're an idiot, something like that. It's like, you're, you're just a little twerp, and this guy, you know, at nine feet tall, armor, shield bearer, uh, been training to be a warrior since his youth. You are just a youth, um, so, uh, so no, no, not, not so much. Uh, and then David gives Saul his resume. Uh, David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. I've been looking over animals. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God, and the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. What would your reaction be to a kid who said that to you? That, that's nice. 
All right, you beat off a dog in the neighborhood. I will repeat, nine feet tall. He's throwing car axles. Different, different scenario entirely. Um, but but I, don't, I, don't really think, I don't really think that David is saying, you know, he's, he's just like fighting off a wildcat. Um, I think in sort of his, I don't know, somewhat immature but very intuitive way, I think David is pointing to what the essential skill is. What is David's essential skill? Trusting God. I think trusting God in a very specific way. I think David has learned the important life skill of risking his life. To him, risking his life is old hat. Risking failure, he's done that. He's done that. And that's the one thing that no one else in this army can do. Uh, there are certainly people in the army better with weapons than David is. But there is nobody risking, uh, better at risking his life than David is, evidently. And because his family is very poor, they only have a few sheep. And because uh, the chore of guarding the sheep is given to the youngest, he has no choice. You know, if his family is going to survive, he's got to beat off lions. So he does it. And he's developed, he's developed the skill. There's a powerful life lesson in that. It's not about how strong you are. It's not about how good you are with weapons. It's about whether or not you're willing to risk your life. And there's certainly... Uh, a trust in God uh, in all of that. David's skill, such as it was, was not the skill of battle per se. It was the skill of risking his life and, and being comfortable doing it because it was the thing that needed to be done, period, end of story. In the battles of life, you can f always figure out strategies to try. You can always figure out things that, that might work. Uh, the question is, are you willing to risk your life on the things of God, on important things? Are you willing to risk failure? Are you willing to risk loss? If you are, you'll go forward. If you're not, uh, not so much. David thinks about the mission. He doesn't think about his life. And uh, for anyone like that, the scene a bully taunting the armies, armies of Israel would look crystal clear. Well, clearly there's a mission here. And he just doesn't do that second bit where he thinks, well, I might lose my life. He's just like, no, there's a mission here. Full stop. <laughs> Who's going to take care of it? Anyone? 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 I'll do it. Um, nice little insight. Uh, the story goes on. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul says to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Again, I think tone needs to be inserted here. Go. God bless you. Something like that. Uh, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head, and David fastened on 
his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. So David's just this little punk. Saul has all of this impressive armor because he's king. One thing we know about Saul is that he's a head taller than anyone else in Israel. So you can imagine that armor made for Saul is like really big. And so you get the picture of this guy sort of staggering around this huge armor, this huge sword. So it's a little bit ridiculous. And David's trying to figure it out. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Uh, I, that's like a nice little literary moment uh, in, in the story. He gets all of this armor, and he rejects the implements of self-defense which is what armor is. And instead, he picks up the instruments of sheep defense. Right? He's not so worried about protecting himself. He's used to protecting sheep. And that's just, that's kind of beautiful, right? It's like, no, this isn't about protecting me. This is about protecting the flock. I'm ready. Let's go. I got my slingshot. I got a stick. I'm good. And that's all any little boy needs, by the way. A slingshot and a stick. Little boys, they're happy the whole afternoon. Am I right? I'm right. And so he's playing to his strength, um, and uh, that's awesome. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, commentaries will make, um, will make a lot out of, well, David chose five stones from the stream. Why five? That must be significant. And we're told in the arc of the story that, that Goliath has four brothers. And so people say, oh, well, he has a stone for each brother. Um, well. He must have been very confident of his accuracy then. Uh, I, uh, maybe that's it. But remember the deal is if David kills just one guy, then the whole army is defeated. So I don't know. I, I doubt that that's it. But anyway, David is, is supplying himself as best he can. He's got some ammo. He's not weighing himself down. He's not being ridiculous. He's playing to his strength. Um, he's doing what, what he has to do. Uh, and then... Uh, And then there's swagger time. I, I didn't write down these verses, but, but here's what happens next. Uh, David goes out to the front line, and David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's how we roll. That's what that's about, right? It's just, it's just a glorious picture, this little guy. Um, you know, stand up, son. He's about that big. Let me sit down. Um, just telling off, right, the whole army. Uh, it's just, so that's why I call it swagger time. This is nothing but pure attitude. Uh, pure attitude. Um, and, uh, and David is just dripping with it. I don't know, if you're going to go fight a giant, with what attitude do you do it? That's a, that's a great question. You've made the decision to fight a giant. Is it time to be A, careful and humble, B, over-the-top trash-talking confident. 
if you're going to attack a giant, you might as well go with B. You know, it's like if you're going to fight a bear, there's no negotiation at that point, right? I mean, the bear does not care. So all you can do is be as intimidating as you possibly can, you know, which is how it works in nature, you know? I saw this great video once of a, a four-ounce uh, weasel fighting a 75-pound wolf. And of course, the weasel won. But the whole time, the weasel was just like puffed out and just attitude and darting around. They're incredibly agile. You know, they're like mongoose, but like on steroids. They're like Olympic mongoose. And, and just like nipping all around. And of course, he didn't damage the wolf, but the wolf just got so upset he left. Uh, it's like, it's like all attitude. Like nature, in nature, little animals make themselves look big. Uh, if nothing else, it signals that uh, you're not to be messed with. And uh, I, I, I just love that moment. I just love trash talk. Uh, I love trash talk. Uh, Nick has played basketball with me. Nick, do I love trash talk? It is the, it's the one facet of the game at which I excel. Um, and David is excelling in, in trash talk. Uh, just fantastic. And then, you know, then the climax of the story, which we all know already, uh, as, the Philistine arm, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Again, no particular reason to run at your giant, but he's like, no, no, this is going down now. It's like the whole thing just kind of drips with attitude. He runs to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stank into his forehead and he fell down on the ground. X giant. Uh, he's done it. Snaps, David. Come on, come on. Maybe the most famous battle in history right there. Takes out the giant. Uh, with uh, anybody ever been to the Holy Land? Ever been to Israel? Have you ever seen the demonstration that they give on a lot of tours of Shepherd's Boy using the sling? It's not a slingshot. It's like a big ropey sling, and they fire, they fire rocks. Like I mean, they, they kill animals doing that. I mean, it is it is it is a potent weapon. Um, and in the Israel Israelite army, there were people with slings. You could kill a man like this. So it was not like entirely innovative. Right? It's, it's not a miracle, is what I'm saying. This wasn't a miracle victory. It wasn't, it wasn't God, you know, coming up with something, a stone from heaven or something like that. Like, it was doable. Uh, and, and, uh, and on these demonstrations, what, what these kids will do for tips is that they'll, they'll like, put a, a stick in the ground, like a pole, and then they'll march off 50 paces, and they will hit the pole. He's like incredibly, incredibly good uh, with this. And so, you know, it was, it was a good shot, um, but kind of what you would expect. Uh, but Goliath was not expecting it. <laughs> you know, he was expecting a champion, sort of a hand-to-hand -hand thing. So, you know, in, in some crazy sense, not surprising that a man could be killed that way. But the scenario and the guy who did it, all of that is, is incredibly uh, surprising. Anyway, he takes Goliath out uh, with, uh, with a shot uh, to the forehead. Nice shot, buddy. It's probably the only place he could have hit him and, and, and be confident of taking him out. David has, has thought this through. You've got to hit him in the head, kid. And, and, and so he did. Um, 
I, I put a coda at the end of the story. And chapter 17 reads a little funny. Uh, at the end of chapter uh, 17, there are a couple verses about Saul watching what's going on. So we already know the end of the story. We already know that David has taken out Goliath. And then the story goes back in time. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, so it's like a Tarantino movie. We've got a time loop, and now we go back and, and see the moment again where David is walking out, only we see it through Saul's eyes. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, who is his big general, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, yeah, I don't know. You'd think that maybe Saul would have asked David during the whole armor interview type process, but I, I, he's just like, yeah, go, get out of here. God bless you. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. Why? The battle hasn't, hasn't even happened yet. Saul is just walking David go out to the battle line. And what is he observing when David goes out to the battle line? It's all the swagger, right? It's just the attitude and the fact that David struts out there and goes running up there and it's like, uh-huh, you want some of this? It's that. That's all that Saul is observing. And he's like, who's that kid's dad? Why? We're not told exactly, uh, but here's what I'm thinking. Like Saul <clears throat> was observing this punk's attitude, uh, his chutzpah, his, you know, his spirit. It's amazing spirit. And Saul's watching this, and he's thinking, that guy is confident to the point of cockiness. He's not confident because of his skill as a warrior. I know this because the dude is like 14. Right? He doesn't have any skill as a warrior. His confidence does not come from his experience. His confidence does not come from, from his skill. His confidence does not come from his size. Where does he get that spirit? And of course, the only thing that Saul can think of is, he must have been raised that way. You know, I mean, where does, where does a kid learn spirit that young? Well, I, I'm, maybe his parents conditioned him. And you know, maybe he's mimicking his dad. And in a way, of course, you know, David is mimicking his dad. Maybe not his earthly dad, maybe not Jesse. I mean, certainly David's brothers didn't have that spirit. Uh, but somehow, in David's intimacy with God, he's learned something that lends itself to that kind of spirit. Another word for spirit is, is heart. And, and that's all we know about David so far, right? God said, this is a man after my own heart. This is a, this is, this is a child who's mimicking my spirit. And Saul, not a smart guy, is smart enough to, to know that much. That if a child acts like that, he's mimicking his, his parent's spirit. Uh, who's his parent? I think Ab Abner comes back and says, Jesse, of course we know that David has been raised uh, not just by the one parent, not just by two, but God has had influence as well. 
nice little, nice little coda to the story. A uh, nice little end piece. Uh, I, I'd, like, I'd like someone to say that about, about me in life. You know, I'd like someone to look at me and say, wow, you know, he's, he's not all that big, he's not all that skilled, he's, he's not all that strong, he's not wealthy, he's not all that influential, but, but the dude will just not back down. Where does that come from? Well, I don't know. Hopefully I'm mimicking uh, my dad's uh, spirit. Why did, why did David do this? Why, why did David mix it up with a giant? Uh, and, we, and again, we never totally get an explanation in the story. Uh, we're learning about David's heart. In this story, we learn that David is, is, is brave. Uh, we learn that David is used to risking his life, and so risking his life doesn't give him a lot of pause. It's like, yeah, well, it's, it's just it's what we do around here. We risk our lives, you know, we risk our lives for, you know, sheep. Um, whatever. The bigger question is about his motivation in, in this moment. As far as we know in the story, God doesn't tell David to do this. There's no indication that God led David to do it, right? There's no commandment anywhere in this story. David just shows up and says, oh, well, this looks weird. You know, what's up with that? And, and we see him asking questions. There's a great verse in the story, you know, I didn't cover, where it says, every, every morning when the Israelite army took its battle lines, they went out with a war cry to their battle line. Ah, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill you. And then David would, I mean, then uh, Goliath would defy them. And then they'd be like, ah, you know, um, run away, run away. And David probably observed that. And it is a pathetic moment, like a whole army raising a war cry. We're awesome. We will kill you. We will kill you. We're going to win. And they know they're, they're just going to, you know, 40 days of that. It's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, I saw, I saw me was wearing a Phoenix Suns t-shirt. It's a little bit like being a fan of the Phoenix Suns. It's like, you know, right, Nick? It's like, we're going to win. This year is the year. I mean, like, you know, you, I mean, you know you're just going to lose, right? Well, it's, just it's just entirely pathetic is what I'm saying. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Um, there, there's a problem, anyway, you know. We, we, see, we see David recognize the problem. We see him trying to solve it by encouraging other people. But we, we never see God say, David, go take care of this. Uh, you're, you're the guy for the job. You know, there's no, there's no particular reason for David to think he's the guy for the job. And in fact, at first, uh, he does not. Uh, I think um, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it because he thinks he's the best guy for the job, probably. There was no expectation that a little shepherd boy uh, would go out into this battle. And, and I think it's clear that David does not do it for the reward, right? He asks, what's the reward for the guy who takes out this giant? And he's told. And then he asks the question again and again. So it's clear he's not asking that question because he's actually after the reward. He's asking the question because he wants to incite the men to take care of it, but they won't. And in the, in the next chapter, chapter 18, uh, because David has, has proven himself, 
you know, in this battle and, and in uh, some subsequent ones as well, uh, Saul uh, does what he promised to do. Saul offers David his daughter, his, his eldest daughter in marriage. And so David would have gotten to become a member of the royal family in chapter 18. What's significant about that? Well, Samuel has anointed David to be king. And when the king says, hey, become my son, dot, 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 and then when I die, you'll take over, that makes sense, right? David might well have thought, well, I, I'm helping out God uh, by, you know, taking this woman to be wife, and uh, this obviously is what God plans all along, but that's not what happened. David said to Saul, who am I, and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Saul's daughter to be given to David, she was given instead in marriage to Adriel of Mehulah. Saul ends up giving, giving the, the woman to someone else, and he, uh, that other guy, becomes part of the royal family. David takes a very humble stance. He says, yeah, I'm not ready. <laughs> I, can, I can slay giants, but I'm not ready to be king. And he was probably right. probably wasn't ready to be a royal and to be treated with that sort of deference. Why did David do what he's doing? And, and I think it's simply because David had a code to live by. I think he had a code of honor, and it's the title of the sermon, and, and that'll be my point for the day. David had a code. I think that's what made him tick. I think David was a man who lived by a code, even when he was a young guy. And living by a code is different than living by commandments. There's difference between commandments and a code. It's a huge difference, and it's really key, I think, to understanding this fellow. Living by commandments means, means living to do what you have to do, you know, what you're, what you're told to do. Um, God, give me a command, and then I'll know exactly what I have to do. I'll know what not to do. I will follow the law. I will follow the instructions, you know, and that's called obedience, you know, that's honoring what God says, and that is 100% wonderful. That's awesome. But in this story, David was not living by commandments. You can live by commandments, and that's great. You live by a code, you, you foster greatness in a different way, you know. Uh, David's code of honor, uh, I think it gets described throughout the rest of his life uh, we see it in some subsequent stories. But here's, here's two things that I, that I think went through David's head on this day. He saw what was going on with Goliath and the army of Israel, and he said, this, this should not be. This isn't right. And then he said, if no one else will take care of it, then I will. Period. End of discussion, end of analysis. That was his entire calculation. This is not right. If no one else will make it right, I will. That's a code. That's a code. I will do this because it's the right thing to do. Not because I have to do it, but because it's the right thing to do. See, that's living by a code, right? You get the difference? If you get the difference, say amen or oorah or something like that. Go, sons. It's the right thing to do. It's the right, just cheer for him. It's the right thing to do. Uh, Eliab, his brother, called him conceited. Saul called him silly. Um, but uh, 
Uh, Dave is like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. I'll figure out how to get it done, but I've already decided to do it because why? It's the right thing to do. If you're God, you've got to love David's heart in this, don't you? I mean, that's a heart worth getting behind. Is a guy that even if he's not under direct orders, even if he has a ton of excuses to not do it, he'll do it anyway because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He might foul it up, but here's a guy you can trust to do the right thing. And I think that's what we need to know about David. David would die for a point of honor because he's used to risking his life. Like, you know, he would die to do the right thing. He's already proven this. All right. This is someone I can work with, God says. Um, I like uh, the contrast between Eliab, David's older brother, and David, the younger brother. Uh, Eliab was thinking about his reputation, and so he got mad at David. David was thinking about God's reputation, and so he became a hero. If you think about your own reputation, you'll be a coward. If you think about God's reputation, you'll be outrageously confident. And uh, that's the story. Jesus calls us. He gave us work to do. Uh, God has given us a bunch of commandments and stuff like that. Um, I think the proper response is obedience, but I think there will also be moments in life where the proper response is swagger and unreasonable confidence, you know? I think uh, the end point to this sermon, and you've probably heard sermons on David and Goliath a lot if you've been hanging around the church for any length of time, what I'm supposed to do now is to inspire you to fight giants in life, right? Right? So just fill that in for a while. Think about the giants in your life and think about how you're supposed to be inspired to fight them. Go. You know, and, and there are some good giants in your life, right? Uh, maybe money is a giant in your life. Maybe too much money or too little money. Maybe loneliness is a giant in your life. You know, what do you do with giants? You face them down. You take care of it. You kill them. You don't pussyfoot around. You just go for them. You run at them. You figure out what weapons you have to bring into the battle. You don't just sit there in stalemate. That is not proper. So figure out your giants, uh, depression, disempowerment of some kind. Maybe there's a giant in your health, your physical health that you need to take care of, that you've just been letting sit there defying uh, God's blessing in your life. Sure, take care of them. Or, or maybe you identify giants in situations of the people around you. Maybe other people are lonely. Maybe other people are sick. Maybe other people are in need, and you need to go slay those giants. You should do that uh, as well. Uh, maybe there's fear in your family. Maybe there's injustice around you. Take care of it. So just say, take care of it. A little better. All right, that's what you do with giants. What do you do with a giant? What do you do with a giant? There, okay. There, we've preached that sermon. Yay! Um, there's, a, there's sort of a, a, an embedded point here. Like, you know, David was perfectly capable to face down a giant when the time came. Why? Well, because uh, he had taken care of sheep uh, his whole life. And uh, what I'd like to suggest to you, that instead of running at the biggest, baddest giant in the land that you can find right now, ask yourself, have you ever risked your life for a sheep? Have you ever risked failure or loss or discomfort or sacrifice to take care of another person who needed it just because that person was there? I mean, let's, let's warm up a little bit. 
uh, before we run at Goliath. I'm not saying that if Goliath walked in here, you shouldn't go for him. You should, because you are the people of God, you know, and, and we should go at injustice in our community, you know, as we're doing. Uh, we should go at, at, you know, darkness in places that don't know God as we are. Uh, we should definitely do all of that, but, you know, we're trying to raise up a whole army of people whose hearts delight the Lord, and I think um, what you have to do is be willing to risk your life whenever there is a point of honor, whenever it is the right thing to do, even if it's a small thing, even if it's just taking care of one sheep, even if it's just fighting uh, down the, the, the ornery dog in your neighborhood. You got it? What we have to do, the essential skill here is, is the skill of risking our lives. And that can be taught to someone who's very young in a way uh, that they'll never forget. And that can also be instilled in someone who's quite old and has nothing left to lose. <laughs> same, same, but the essential skill is being willing to risk your life. Why? Well, because sometimes it's the right thing to do. Not because God orders you to do it. Not because you have to do it to get to heaven. Because it's the right thing to do. And that's the, that's the story of, of, of David and Goliath. I will do this because it's the right thing to do. Not because I have to. Because it's the right thing to do. And it's so glorious that people have been telling this story for a good 3,500 years. One key will be the swagger, I'm telling you. Giant killers are just shepherd boys who fight without fear. You've got to get your game on. You've got to get your confidence on, right? You can't, you can't fight these battles if you're divided in your head. Look, if you're going to win, win! Decide you're going to win. Don't decide along the way. You're going to decide beforehand that you're going to take care of it and do it. And giant killers are just simple folk with a code of honor that they won't stand to see violated. We'll close with an excerpt from Psalm 18, which is one of the many psalms that David writes. You know, one curious thing about the life of David in the Bible is that we really don't see him interact with God very much. Like, we don't see him pray with God or anything like that. We see him dance before the Lord in the temple at one point, and there are a few scenarios like that. But he does write lots of psalms. He, like, he writes lots of songs, and they are recorded for us in Scripture. Psalm 18 says, With your help I can advance against a troop. With my God I can scale a wall. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. When do you think he wrote that song? I'm not sure, but I know why he wrote the song. It's because he had tested it out and discovered uh, that this was true.